0: Welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. This is Jeffrey Grohman, and uh, I am joined with my co-panelist, Henry Jukes. How are you doing today,
1: Henry?
2: I'm doing great, Jeff.
1: How are you doing? I am doing great, Software is at the core of innovation for nearly every company in the world. While software drives innovation, almost all software delivery is powered by DevOps. Release fast, secure your software packages, and distribute all the way to the edge with the JFrog platform. It's universal hybrid DevOps for your universal hybrid digital world. Use the JFrog platform for free on all major clouds at jfrog.co slash adventures. That's jfrog.co slash adventures. If you take the Docker challenge, you'll get a free t-shirt.
0: So today, it's just the two of us, and we are going to sort of take off from where we left off last week when we were speaking with Alessandro Diaferia. Hopefully, I pronounced his name correctly. But it was a great conversation, if you missed it, uh, where we were sort of exploring some of the pitfalls, if you will, of you know how DevOps, how some of the concepts, how some of the role titles are used that are not necessarily, you know, accurately depicting, you know, what what it really means in reality, right? So, we wanted to sort of pick up the conversation and talk about, you know, at least our understanding, of what we've seen uh, in real life and experiences in terms of what do, I guess, you know what do some of the roles look like? How do organizations sort of organize themselves, for lack of a better term, to sort of take on some of the DevOps culture and goals and objectives? And yeah, I mean, we'll sort of see where this goes. Henry, does that does that fit with uh, with with what you were thinking as well?
2: I, yeah, I think that sounds great because you know we left that conversation really talking, landing into this idea of DevOps as. Almost more of a, a pattern and a cultural scheme. You know, it, it's about this focus on collaboration, about being a multidisciplinary team that's able to facilitate, you know, both the developer and operation sides of uh, an engineering organization, and about how you know there's to a certain extent idea of a, a single DevOps engineer kind of misses the point of that collaborative process. That by necessity, as organizations grow and get more complex, there needs to be specialization. No one person can be a developer, operations, security expert, and all of the other things. So, you know, landing on how to develop that culture internally. But the the question still stands of what does it mean to build out that organization and what are the types of like what are the actual roles that you're hiring for and how should those pieces work together? So I guess the, to start off, I'd be curious to kind of think of off the top of your head, what are the, the aspects that you think fall into DevOps and maybe what are some roles that, that would live outside of that space or, or patterns that, that you see?
0: right you know and it's you know so talking about you know from my experience i got started in it um over 20 years ago and it and it certainly you know it's funny in some ways it's changed so much but in some ways like we still see a lot of the same sort of paradigms like when i got started you know we had these large system administration, that's usually what, what these folks would call, it's just admins. And you had people sort of, you know, divided up by the platform that they manage, right? So you had the Windows folks and the Linux and the Unix, and, you know, you had the different database platform teams as well. And what's interesting to me is that I, I'll i go into um, clients and I'll still see that, you know, that it, it hasn't changed. Like, you know, maybe uh, you see less of the commercial Unix flavors today, um, although I still run into, you know, run into that as well. You know, so okay, a little, you know, a little bit has changed. And and maybe today you see a little bit more um diversity also like within within the database platforms, because now you know you can't really be expected to be, you know, to your point of of specialization. Like no one's going to be an Oracle expert and at the same time being like a Hadoop extra expert or, or, you know, whatever it is, or, you know, starting to use, uh, you know, any of the cloud platforms, all, all that stuff. Like there are, you know, you make a great point that there are so many specialties out there. Um, and even within my field of security, there's no way that you can know all the different pieces. So I I, I think the specialization has become, you know, I, I, li- I liken it often to the medical field where... You know, the specialization is, is, is incredible, right? Where, you know, you could be today, you know, you can be a cardiologist that, that is very specific to just pacemakers or pediatrics, or, you know, it's like specialties and subspecialties and sub subspecialties. And I think we have a lot of that same paradigm, you know, in the IT world. So I, I, I think that, you know, part of it is just sort of grappling with the fact that, you know, if your IT organization has been around for a while, that's probably what you look like. and now if you're trying to transform it, you know one piece of it is, okay, how do we transform it um, so that it sort of fits with the goals of DevOps? So there's the organizational transformation. But you know one thing I, I before I hand it back off to you because I want to hear your you know your thoughts and your experiences as well. but you know I, one thing I also don't want to leave off is I think it's so much more than just the roles when i think about devops uh, i also think about the cultural changes that it requires the fact that you really have to be a learning organization and you know again my experience going back you know a couple of decades is you had to be so cautious about every little change right change management over my over the span of my career went from being rather informal in many organizations to becoming overly formal, where every min- minuscule change has to be documented and approved, etc. Because, you know, teams became so risk adverse that, you know, hey, we can't make a change in production that could possibly affect anybody. <laughs> Everything has to be seamless. And that's not how it works. At least I, that's, you know, sort of how I think about DevOps is, you know, the resiliency has to be built in, but it also means you have to be willing to take some risks to test that resiliency. Because unless we test it, we don't know if the resiliency really works the way that we think it will. So I, I there's that aspect and there's like, and I think they go hand in hand. There's also the aspect of, you know, the blameless postmortems, which also, when I think of the span of my career, I can tell you how many blameful uh, postmortems I had been part of, you know, and they're painful. And I think that you can't, you know, just like you can't assign somebody a DevOps engineer role and say, "Oh yeah, we're DevOps now." I think you also can't just sort of move people around like chess pieces and not take on some of these, you know, take on the idea of blameless postmortems and becoming a learning organization and really be DevOps. But I I want to pause because I really want to hear. You
2: know, your your thoughts on those on those ideas. First and foremost, I think that there is a component where developer operations as a culture and as a practice is something that is almost always specific to a particular organization and its implementation and what works for them. Part of that is just due to the needs of a company and part of that is about how that company evolves over time because you know, it's very challenging. You're never going to be at a point where you're going to have a 30 person you know, engineering organization without having to evolve higher by higher to get to that position. Yep. And so the specialization of each individual engineer, you know, contributor out to the team is going to be dependent upon that history uh, to that end. You know, I think I've talked about this before where my first exposure to the concept of of developer operations was basically myself as a developer being told, Hey, you're responsible for all of your operations. And I think, you know, at a small company in a small project, there's a, uh, uh, some strong value to that concept of a developer owning their operations. Um, and what becomes important is thinking really about where it's applicable to draw that line. So you know, as a developer today, there's some pieces of the infrastructure that You know, I I fully own and I'm responsible for some of the databases that are just relied upon by my part of the team are owned and you know, the specified. What sizing do we need? What version are we upgrading through? All of that maintenance of the operations is maintained by the set of application developers responsible for it. But at the same time, saying that someone should be fully fluent with all of the security implementations um, and implications of their choices, and you know, be uh, an AWS expert or whatever cloud platform you happen to be on, um, especially as you talk about uh, organizations that aren't yet in the cloud. you know, To be in a position where you're needing to stand up infrastructure on your own is, you know, just not viable for for many of these companies that require some level of on-prem solution. And so working through where what pieces you do have engineers and team members that are specialized and what pieces you can hand over is really useful and key. In terms of the, the evolution, at least from my experience, you know, I've seen a few small companies grow, follow that process where, you know, You start off when you have only a few engineers, it's very hard to be a five-person startup and, you know, be in a position where you can bring on someone that's just dedicated to operations and infrastructure. You know, you need to have that flexibility where someone wears a lot of hats. And then as you grow, at some point, you bring on that person that can either kind of automate some of the deployment, can leverage infrastructure as code, can start to maintain that. And then it's that maybe it's a security person, maybe it's your systems administrator, as you say, then you can slowly add to that team with various specializations and start looking at about how you organize. Probably spend a whole episode talking about whether you take a horizontal or vertical approach, where one of those would be effectively having multidisciplinary teams where you have someone embedded that is purely responsible for the security concerns or infrastructure concerns of that particular team and the applications that it owns. Um, And then there may be other cases where a particular part of your infrastructure, this is your classic DB admin position, where they are, you know, there, there might be a dozen teams that are using that piece of the infrastructure. And so it doesn't make sense. We need to have someone that can be the central point that can see that, you know, you can optimize schemas in a certain way that we need to have deal with certain scaling and connection problems that is able to really be focused on the success metrics there. I guess I'll, I'll kind of wrap up by saying that there's this idea for me that, the largest goal of anyone that falls within the developer operations space is that idea of facilitating and streamlining the developer workflow to make it faster and easier each each year, each month, each quarter to be able to deliver the application that is core to your business. You know All of the software that you're trying to maintain. And through that process, I feel so much of the work that we do is looking at, you know, what are the things that we're doing manually today and how do we automate that so that we're not doing that tomorrow? Yeah,
0: you know, I I, I feel like you really hit on a
2: couple of big points.
0: One, one that I think about a lot is this notion of, and you gave the example of, you know, when you're talking about having a platform that becomes something that multiple teams are building upon, you know, and having that, you know, sort of platform expertise that, you're not going to try and embed that into each individual team, and so I think you know part of it is just being thoughtful about that, right? So if you're talking about you know I, I've seen organizations do that at the sort of cloud implementation layer where you know, you've got an AWS team for you know for example, and they're sort of helping to set up the infrastructure so that you know you can sort of each team can sort of just take what they need and then they own it, but the initial you know, platform that's being uh, stood up for you, that is a separate team that, that's doing that. And I think that's an interesting way to sort of, you know, maybe divvy up how you do it and, and how you manage it. So I think the other piece of it is, is that if every team is responsible and acting atomically, then you can very easily, as as the organization grows, or if you already are a large organization, like this is one of the problems that we found uh, again, over the span of my career, we saw this over and over again. Was you had this this notion of shadow IT. If you've ever, I don't know if you've heard heard that, but you know, and what that really was is that you had these teams who were acting independently and atomically, but they were setting up infrastructure that nobody knew about. You know, this became an issue from an inventory standpoint. It became an issue from, like, a licensing standpoint. I'm, I can remember back in the day, just, like, you know, anecdotally, here's here's a couple of ideas. I mean, certainly from the security standpoint, we're always scared about shadow IT functions because if, if we don't know what's out there, we can't secure it, we can't audit it, you know, and all that stuff. Okay. I think we get that. But, you know, there were other ancillary issues there, too, which was, like, I remember back... Um, Probably going back a decade or a decade and a half, Microsoft used to have these teams (laughs) that would go around to companies and audit them and say, Are you, you know, like basically using more than your licensing allows you to use of all of our Microsoft products? And it was because of these shadow IT functions, you know, in, in quotes, what sort of stand up infrastructure and nobody would know it. I mean, I, I don't know that people are doing this nefariously, although I'm, I'm sure that happened too. But I think, for, you know, in a lot of organizations, stuff was just being stood up to get to get work done and people weren't, you know, and so I think licensing is just, is just an example of that. But, you know, you, you have to have some central management of things just so you know what's going on and, you know, for multiple reasons. So I, I think there's a that interesting you know, maybe sort of dual paradigm that like what you were describing, do you go vertically and do you go horizontally? And the truth is, I think when you have any kind of complexity at all, you're probably doing a little bit of both because you have to. So, I, I you know, I think that's such an interesting area. But again, it's it's sort of being thoughtful about how you do that. You know, one other on this subject, and I want to, you know, maybe toss it back over to you with, with a thought or the, or a question as well is when you think about like each team sort of being independent acting atomically and the idea of sort of building upon and i and i think you know from a technology standpoint that's where the power of things like microservices and apis becomes so powerful you know you can basically do what you want within your microservice as long as you don't affect you know any other you know, anything else that's, that's sort of plugging into you. So as long as you don't change your API, hey, go do what you need to do. Um, if you change that API, you got to let everybody else know about it. And so, it, it, you know, you sort of have to put those controls in place so that that's being handled in, in an appropriate way. But I want get, to get get your thoughts on how, on how you've seen that, maybe even, you know, hands on um, how you've seen that
2: work. It's interesting because I think in this same idea of horizontals and verticals, there then starts to be that question of like, what what does success criteria mean? And and that I think ties back to your question because you'll see, you know, some someone might follow a, a site reliability engineering pattern in which you're heavily driven by establishing your SLOs and SLAs. Yeah. Let, let's pause for a second there. Because I, I feel like this is
0: just me personally. I, I doubt I'm the only one out here that that kind of feels like I've heard that term of site rela- reliability engineer. I, I you know, I, I've seen Google tout it for a long time, and other organizations sort of take that on. I kind of feel like that might be a role that's sort of like DevOps. It's sort of amorphous or ambiguous. And what does it mean? <laughs> that, that's my bottom. What What is that? Um, what does it mean? why can't it just be an infrastructure person or a sysadmin
2: or I I don't know what or a platform engineer? What, what is an SRE? So I guess going into it, the, I'm sure I've referenced this on the show in the past, but the way that uh, Google has described um, SRE is, is effectively like an implementation of the DevOps interface. Um, and so the focus, um, as I understand it, for SRE is that, Rather than being uh, kind of function focused, you know, from the perspective of like a DBA that's responsible for a particular suite of databases and underlying infrastructure, or someone that might be a security um, administrator that is heavily focused on security problems across the, the platform, um, site reliability as engineers are a bit more of a metrics first focus. You establish particular set of slos and SLAs that you're responsible for, whether that be uptime or you know, the, the performance of your site overall. And from those very specific metrics, you look for, you know, effectively what are the low-hanging fruits or what are all the nails that are impacting those metrics in a negative way. And then you tactically then work within the organization to drive down and, you know, uh, alleviate those issues. It has the advantage of being able to say that, okay, we have one or two or a team of people that are dedicated to you know, making sure uptime is as high as possible for this particular set of services. And so you will often see effective results in those metrics. But you run into some of the same risks as you're kind of alluding to that we described with uh, Alessandro uh, around that the tactics that are required to be able to solve those particular problems are highly varied. And so your skill set needs to be quite broad to be able to execute efficiently. And so I've often seen the most effective SREs that I've worked with and people that, that really focus on that particular role, a lot of the time it is a coordination role. It's a collaborative role that's very much working with the people that have the insights in those different areas and connecting them together so that they can prioritize particular tasks that are specific to their specialization uh, to be able to to you know draw move the needle for the metrics that they care about. It, works quite well in situations where I think, you know, to that original developer operations vision of saying, hey, the developers should be responsible for the operations, that as a result, you might have a wide variety of different developers that are responsible for different parts of the operations across the organization. You don't have a single point of you know, failure or a point of uh, conversation. Um, to be able to look at the overall health of a service or of this entire site. Um, and so you need those points of coordination to get those people together. Whereas if you were in a position where, let's say you have a, a platform team, um, you within platform engineering, you know, as I'm kind of defining it, as I'm used to it, there are people that are focused on being able to facilitate, building in all the tools to facilitate efficient development in the site that you can be able to say, okay, there's these pieces of the platform that are slowing people down or, or causing particular issues. You're Uh, like ownership entirely relies within that team to build that you know there is a clear-cut interface in the way that you would for a service and so you can just within that team have responsibility for the health of the those pieces that that would be a different model from from the SRE model um, as I understand it and and it's yeah it's an interesting paradigm
0: too again you know I'm going to sort of you know, sort of swing the other direction again and say, you know, uh, I think historically, at least again, you know, span of my career, I've seen where organizations really fought to try and build up a, an enterprise architecture type of a function. And again, a lot of that was risk, you know, adversity. In other words, wanting to avoid risk, wanting to make sure that some team isn't sort of going off on their own and putting together, you know, some kind of piece of infrastructure or application or something like that that was had never been, you know, used before, had never been tested, and all of a sudden, you know, puts the puts the company at risk or what what have you. So you have these enterprise architects that are supposed to be, you know, sort of guiding um and, and sort of signing off on, you know, proving, you know, anything that sort of comes through there, comes across your desk. And obviously that also becomes a very i think historically what's be, what's happened is it's for sort of like the change management process it's just become a slow process in the enterprise that our architects were slow to you know allow teams to say hey we need to move off of you know the big R D M S, and we need to you know move to something that's a bit more whatever it is agile for us or or what have you. And and they were always sort of slow to to uh, adopt you know new technologies and innovation and that sort of thing because 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 they were sort of set up not to do that. And I feel like when we describe an SRE, it seems like we're trying to solve some of that problem by sort of you know looking at things at a at maybe a level much closer to the application at hand, um, or the bit of the application, like maybe it's a microservice, and saying, "Okay, how do we sort of architect this and build this in a way that will match our goals?" Does does that mean? I mean, do you feel like that's is that really the idea behind the SRE? Again, is, is to sort of grease the wheels, if you will, but also have somebody who is the goal is never to. I don't think the goal of DevOps is ever to sort of Completely get rid of the oversight and the, I, I, right. The, there always has to be that sort of level of someone's keeping an eye on things. And yes, we have to make sure that you know uptime and, and all that. And, and I think that's part of what you were describing with the SLOs and the SLAs. But it feels like that's what the SRE is really about—is maybe you know, sort of building your organization and decentralizing it in such a way that you've got folks that are closer to the application who can. Very quickly shift to different designs if and when necessary in order to meet you know business needs and, and the business design goals.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think to that end, like the way that I've interacted with so so with SRE for a point of comparison, as a developer, you have that initial phase where you're architecting, you're designing, you're trying to to take all these considerations in and. You will want to, during that review process of, hey, this is what we plan to build. This is how this new service will be implemented with this particular change. You'll want to get some review, some sign-off from different roles within the organization. And then based on the complexity of that organization, maybe you need to sign off from security and from infrastructure and from platform and from building release so that they all know their responsibilities to get that stood up versus as you're able to drive more and more of that responsibility towards the developer, then there's fewer roles that are signing off, but that also means that there's greater risk of things falling through the gaps. And so one of the, the concepts of, you know, one of the ways that I've interacted with people in an SRE role in the past has been to be in a position to be in those meetings and know where to connect people as appropriate. So you don't necessarily need sign off from security on every single iteration, but when something clearly has a security component, that they're in a position to understand how this particular change would affect those metrics and either be able to speak to it themselves or be able to Identify the key stakeholders that should be followed up with, and so that's where I kind of think about things from that metrics-focused perspective. You're as as the person that is responsible for saying that, hey, like you, I need to facilitate you to continue your development and release this feature while keeping you know the guardrails effectively as stable and you know solid as possible. Gives you that different kind of push in those conversations because it's very easy for application engineering teams to be very focused on how do you complete your deliverables as efficiently as possible. And sometimes efficiently can turn into, oh, well, I just didn't think of XYZ problems. Um, And so having that ownership that is entirely focused on reliability, gives you that push and pull uh, to be able to be as efficient as possible um, as a team. But I think that going back to our prior conversation has the risk that now you're putting a lot of pressure on a certain team or role within the organization to be able to accomplish many things.
1: Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just you need something like that there. And Rain Gun is awesome awesome at this they they just added the performance monitoring which is really slick and it works like a breeze i i just i love it i love it it's like it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs it's anyway definitely go check it out it's going to save you a ton of time a ton of money a ton of sanity i mean let, let's face it grepping through logs is no fun and having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at Adventures in adventuresindevopspodcast.com slash Raygun.
0: Let's, uh, you know, maybe... It might be, uh, you know, maybe we can wrap up with this one. But and one thing we haven't really talked about, and I think it's you when you uh, were talking about, you know, like security, for instance, and again, it's just sort of like, okay, what am I responsible for as a team, as an independent or atomic team, versus what do I have to sort of look to the centralized group to do? Again, this vertical versus horizontal. And one thing that it sort of made me think about is, um, uh, I believe it's called test-driven development. Am I using the right? So, I love uh, the idea of that, especially when we think about you know sort of the automated testing that could happen for security, you know. Because then, yeah, I think that's a great example of where again the team can take more ownership and responsibility because when you've got these automated testing that's going on and we're testing for security cases or abuse cases that sort of thing that that we talk about in security, you know, if the development teams are doing that and owning that and sort of adding to those those test cases. Like I I think about the numbers I've heard, like, you know, at one point, I think like in 2013, Google was doing like 75 million automated tests a day. And then it like jumped, I don't know, if several years later went to like 150 million. It's just like mind-boggling numbers, right? Of automated testing. But when you think about that, then you know, I feel like that's the sort of when you have that sort of environment, that's what gives, I think, you know uh, central management the folks who have that role of a, of central management makes them feel a bit more confident in the teams when there's so much automated testing going on that i heard this quote recently i think it's from white you know for, from a, a while back but it's a great quote like automated testing is what sort of takes you from fear to boredom i'm not sure if i'm getting that right but you know that's the idea like you know, and it, so we haven't really spoken about that piece of it, but I feel like that's such a huge piece of everything that we're talking about, that that's what gives you the insight. It's sort of the, the um or cord that you can always pull because if one of those tests fails, I know that there's a problem. And if I'm continually building cases, then I'm also, a that means that we're also a continual, you know, learning organization. So it's sort of tying back to that, that those themes that that we started with. Again, I want to throw that back over to you, but I feel like those are huge pieces in my mind for like really proving how well the DevOps culture can work,
2: you know, of, of these like small teams that are just working independently. Yeah, I mean, to that end, I as we talk about this idea of collaboration being key to DevOps, it's helpful to kind of outline how we think about what those pieces that are collaborating are. Obviously we have the development side, application development, actually working towards the, the iterations on the product. There's the release management portion, which I think is everything from your CI CD pipelines and integration and deployment, but also all of the testing that's going to be required to make sure that you can safely do that. Because you know, if you're just continuously deploying without validating the code, then you're at a massive risk. Um, and, and you know, safety is kind of the name here. There's the infrastructure component, um, whether that be how you're managing cl- cloud services, how you're provisioning on-prem architecture, and then also like what are the pieces that are living on top of that architecture, whether they be the, the actual deployments you're performing or you know the the databases and queues and all the different pieces of, of software that your platform relies upon and then i think there's that component of measurement um you know kind of addressing issues as they come up looking at the security of your system and Finally, even integrating in that idea of developer tools and developer platform, what are things that we can build to facilitate all the rest? Like, you know, know, infrastructure as code is part of that, test-driven development relies on effective testing tools, fixtures, ways to be able to build that out. Kind of narrowing into that idea of, velocity and you know being able to leverage tests and the testing harness to move very quickly something we were talking about before the show is this idea of whether that like how people iterate towards a CI/CD world you know that for some people they're in a position where maybe right now you're deploying once a week maybe it's it's you know every couple of weeks you might have a QA team that's part of this whole life cycle, and so you're looking to move to a world where you have that flexibility, and so you can either go through the process of prioritizing, hey how do what, like, like how do we have something to deploy every single day in the first place? Like how do we get our team into working on? sprints and and having clear deliverables and looking at that release structure or there's the, the question of like well how do we build out the infrastructure so that we're capable of doing this deploys uh, I believe the term you used was something to the effect of like cd ready um the, this this idea where you might be and i honestly think that it makes actually makes sense from a, a infrastructure perspective from a devops perspective. Is almost this idea where you you could be CI/CD and deploying a thousand times a day, or you know, there's teams that that have spent all this time building up the infrastructure for CI/CD and might be still releasing twice a week. And I think that you know, there's. A, uh, uh, you want to be able to balance your investment as much as possible. If you're over-investing into a development infrastructure that is, you know, hyper-tuned for a thousand deployments a day and you're only deploying once a week, then you, you've spent two those resources could have been allocated elsewhere. But I do think that there's a very strong value of not necessarily deploying all the time, but being able to deploy at any time. You know, if it requires a two week cycle to be able to get the code from someone's computer into production, then it means that your flexibility to be able to address issues is on a two-week life cycle, that any problem that goes into the system will take two weeks to repair. And so, of course, it's incredibly dangerous for you to make any change. You need to that that almost progressively lengthens that cycle. You need to be more and more confident in the things that you're changing because there's so much of a risk to having a bad deployment. But as you move to a world where you can deploy in, you know, hours or minutes, um, that puts you in a position where the, the difficulty, the, the, the bar for the code that you're putting into the system, the bar for that development can be lower because you have greater flexibility and a greater sa- safety net. Now, I'm not saying, oh, great, like once you're CICD, push garbage into production all the time. Um, but I do think that, That's going to be one of the facilitating components where developers will feel more comfortable moving faster, moving in a more agile fashion because they feel safer in the changes that they're making.
0: Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. I, I, I love that idea. It's, it's yeah, the CD Ready is, is, you know, a client of mine was was talking to me about it, you know, because we were talking through like how quickly they need to be or how often they need to be deploying, you know, new builds. And it wasn't that often, but they wanted the resiliency, which I think is such a, it's a great design goal. Um, and, and to your point, you know, you're right. You, you never know when you know, the event happens that you need to deploy very quickly, whether it's a security event or whether it is a, you know, bug fix or or what have you. Right. And, you know, to your point, if it takes you, you know, days or weeks before you can safely deploy, you're going to be in a world of hurt and just the way that, you know, the way that that our world is today, Um, how quickly things evolve and shape up and change. Um, You've got to be able to deploy quickly, you know, if, and when it's ever uh, necessary well cool i I felt like you know we we've sort of covered a lot of territory but I feel like we've also sort of painted a picture of you know sort of what are more of the specifics that so we really didn't get into last week and that was really the goal for this week was to sort of dig in a little bit deeper go at, you know go at this and say okay practically speaking what are some of the things that You have to think about if you want to try and really change your organization into more of a DevOps type of culture, um, you know, so that that those goals and objectives. Any last thoughts? I don't want to cut you off. So
2: any last thoughts or that you wanted to speak before we move on to picks? No, I think we've covered a lot of ground, as you said. Um, I think that the main thing that I'd like to say is that you know, as we talked about in the beginning, this is. Something where the needs and what's practical at each organization varies. You know, what each of our experience has been is almost certainly going to be different from other people. And I can imagine that we have listeners that are hearing me talk about my experience with SRE and they're like, no, it's completely different with ours. <laughs> And so to that end, you know, I I look forward to finding more opportunities with our guests and and with the whole community to continue to learn, to continue to expand these definitions and really hone in to see what's being most effective at each different location and and what we can learn and, and bring together. Absolutely. Well, cool.
1: Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com code. That's audibletrial.com code.
0: Well, why don't we shift gears then and sort of go over to fix? So I will, I don't mind, uh, I'll I'll go first on this one. I've got, so my pick this week is something that's sort of top of mind to me. I've got three kids in school and uh, just the nature of how school is going this year. They're, they are physically there, but uh, the school is very, very conscious of the fact that, you know, at any given time, some of the students are going to be home or the whole school may have to, you know, sort of shift into an online mode. So because of that, uh, each student has their own device, whether it's the device they're they themselves are bringing or whether the school is providing it. <clears throat> For me, it's been a challenge of trying to figure out, and with kids just being on screens more and more, how do you sort of figure out parental controls? And I, I, I kind of feel like a lot of people are in a lot of different places, um, and I've just sort of, as a technology guy, <clears throat> I really have spent a lot of time just trying to figure out what do I feel comfortable with and what... You know what's giving me the controls, but what's also giving me the monitoring. <laughs> you know those are to me the two sort of pieces that that are so important. So and on top of that, I've got one kid who um, they're supposed to have tablets, so we gave them we gave uh, her a Amazon Kindle Fire you know kids version, which is awesome because you get the two year guarantee if they you know if they like drop it in the bathtub, it, you know Amazon will replace it free within two years. So that's like you know. Uh, that's a great guarantee. So you have their free time, um, which is like a subscription service, but it gives you a lot of parental controls and the ability to sort of look at what they've been doing. So you can really control what apps they have access to, what you know, books and um, videos and what websites they can see, all that. So it's pretty cool and pretty granular. And then I've got another kid who's on a Chromebook, so sort of tying that with my Google account. And <clears throat> that's been sort of interesting figuring, finding out that like, at the, for, for kids, I'm trying to remember what the age limit is, but but um, for instance, kids cannot look at YouTube at all. If you've got your kid and you've got the parental controls enabled, <clears throat> they don't even try to like control or filter what on YouTube you could see versus what you can't see it. So they just literally like, it's gone. And that was a problem because, you know, uh, we found this out last year when all this began, that the the teachers sent out sent out like a URL, you know, it was a YouTube video to watch for homework, and she couldn't see it because um, on her Chromebook, it was blocked. Um, and then I've got another, uh, um, Our I've our, uh, got a son who's using HP, uh, uh, it's a Windows 10 laptop. So <laughs> I've got that one. We started as Windows 10 s S, moved over because that really did not work at all. Couldn't even put Chrome on it. So, Uh, we moved over to the standard Windows 10. But, you know, you've got parental controls, you can tie it to your Microsoft account. You have some granular controls over like, you know, URLs you want to block, apps you want to block, times that you can use. So 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 definitely a lot of similarities between the three um, that I've seen. But you have these like quirky things like the YouTube thing on, on, you know, and it's just like, you have to like, work through it to figure out what's actually gonna work and you don't wanna frustrate your kids too much. So to be honest, though, I guess my pick is, I'm not so happy with the way that uh, Google does it uh, on Chromebooks, <clears throat> just because it's sort of like, there's, they, they are giving you more controls to sort of relax that, but um, I do feel like free time and I think Windows, Microsoft is actually giving you a little bit easier time of like, you know, monitoring a uh, better interface for that, you know, the controls and the monitoring, I feel like are just a little bit easier to manage on both of those platforms. Um haven't really touched iPad much, but those are that's actually really tough to do at all. So I think that, that to me is totally not a good pick. Um, and it's a more expensive device. But, you know, I feel like I'm trying to squeeze a lot of information, to like, you know, just a few minutes, because there's this is like months of like, sort of research, and, you know, just, you know, trying to do it on the fly. And, Helping kids when they're screaming and yelling because they're so frustrated um, that they can't get to something or what have you. But it's it really is an interesting um, thing. And I guess the last piece I'd throw in there is, you know, then when you talk about like your home network, then you can do things like with Open DNS, you can do some really cool DNS blocks uh, by category, and that's free. Anybody can sign up for it. It's now part of Cisco, Cisco's umbrella security, but you can still sign up for it under Open DNS. And at least have that control, but that's obviously tied to your like home Wi-Fi. So when they're at school or they're at a friend's house or something, all bets are off. So yeah, you, you have to sort of look at this sort of holistically. And yeah, I don't think there's you know one side that fits all, but uh man, it's it's a little bit confusing. It's a lot of work to sort of try to figure out like what's gonna work and what What's going to be the challenges, and, and sort of working with your school to figure out what do they need access to, what are they actually going to be using? Because there's a lot more apps that the kids are using too. At least our, our our kids are. So I'm going to wrap that up. Hand it over to you, Henry. That was my long pick, but my pick, like I say, for parental controls is is definitely free time, or um, I think Microsoft Windows has done a really good job of it
2: too. That's good to know. I mean, I feel like as someone that's you know just had his first child. The role of technology for children and how to best kind of maintain and manage that is probably one of the hardest problems of our time. Because yeah. just, you know, the when when I was growing up, when I was first introduced to to computers, you know, the the like level of complexity was, you know, like what website can you have access to? But now you have so many sites that have such a gradient of you know types of content you can you know on youtube you can have everything from nursery rhymes to you know really graphic or, or violent or, or you know, dangerous content on there and you know as you say some of it's ne- needed for for roles and some of it isn't but it's very difficult to block similar to the same conversations that we've been having with you know, the type of news and content that's shared on social media it, it's yeah. My, my only hope, and uh, maybe a foolish one, is that by the time uh, my daughter Mila gets to be a bit older, that we'll have some better solutions or <laughs> at least common practices uh, for some of this stuff. I guess expanding on that topic in an unrelated way, also you know, one of the big things when, when I was growing up was screen time how much time you're spending, you know, on the computer, on the TV, like making sure it doesn't sit too close to the TV. Right. You know, your your eyes will turn square, Um, and so (laughs) now in in the modern day, um, I just got, uh, my my pick is uh, I got my first VR headset, so we're literally strapping the screen in front of your eyeballs um, these days and and calling that okay, but it's been really, really fascinating. I've followed uh, VR um, for quite some time now, it's a really interesting technology to me, but you know, but the, the, I got the, the new um, Oculus Quest that was recently released, and it's just, it's amazing how well it's able to trick your body and give you experiences that, that aren't really available in any other format. You know, watching a video doesn't really do it justice. The kind of visceral reaction that you have um, experienced that platform, um, it's you know, very much in in its infancy. I mean, it's obviously gone a long way over the past five years, but I can't help but feel that many of the core applications feel a lot like, you know, mobile apps do, uh, you know, whether it be a mobile game or productivity application, that difference between what you're able to do on your phone versus what you're able to do on a full computer, you know, really exists as a gulf. And there's a bit of that when it comes to these applications, but the Visceral experience makes it very clear why this is such a compelling technology and why it's getting so much um, steam. And I'm really excited to see where it goes going into the future. Um, and these, you know, it, it's it's uh, really interesting to me to see in you know, kind of the at a time where people aren't able to get out much, um, what types of experiences we're able to give people to to, to simulate that
0: yeah absolutely the ability to sort of travel without having to travel or yeah absolutely Uh, connect with people when you can't connect with them physically well great well hey um that was awesome i feel like we had a great uh conversation and i appreciate uh you joining me again henry and uh that will wrap it up for this week's episode
1: and um thank you for joining us bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest CDN.